Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. text this morning is Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself in fine, pure linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words are true words of God. And I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, You must not do that. For I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, 
and with it the false prophet who is in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Amen. Please be seated. I trust in our study of Revelation 19, it will indeed be beneficial to you. You'll see why there is this emphasis on when Jesus comes. This message is to encourage and comfort us. It is to edify us as the people of God. I have not verified the numbers, but one author notes the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth is clearly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. It is mentioned in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned 318 times. During our Lord's lifetime, at his first coming, he referred to his second coming 22 times. The second coming of Jesus Christ, as we will see, as we have noted throughout our study of Revelation, is the climax and the consummation of human history. It is the end of the age when Jesus comes. This morning, we will begin to look at the second coming of Jesus. We have noted it several times inside the book, and we'll see this as a repeating pattern in which Jesus Christ comes. It is different than his first coming. In his first coming, it was with meekness and humility, and he willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. When he returns the second time, he will come as a conqueror and judge and king. And we are longing and waiting for that coming. The event described in Revelation chapter 19 is a repeated event. It is the second coming of Jesus. By repeated, I mean within the book of Revelation. The themes of wrath, of the bottomless pit, and coming are all present throughout the book of Revelation. When we have studied the book of Revelation, we have seen how it's mentioned in chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19, and then in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. So this idea is repeated often, and when you look at the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls, you see how they all end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are all telling us the same story over and over again. And the pivotal moment toward which the revelation builds is in the triumphant return of the exalted king. Jesus Christ is coming again. And that should indeed put a smile on your face. As the people of God, that is a word of encouragement and comfort for all of us. One of the things that we must see as we study the book of Revelation is how the old is the new concealed, the new is the old revealed. The Bible does indeed tell a single story, and at the center of it is Jesus Christ. So what we read of in Revelation is the consummation of this entire story. The vocabulary, the imagery inside of Revelation chapter 19 is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. In passages such as Isaiah 11, Daniel 7, we also see this as a repeating theme in John chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Matthew 24. All of these refer to this singular event. Now, the passage, Revelation 19, has two structural markers. And I'm wanting to see this because what I'm telling you is coming directly from the text. Grammatically, when you read chapter 19, you have this reoccurring idea. After this, I heard, then I heard, then I saw, then I saw, and I saw. And I would encourage you to pick up the manuscript so you can take a look at it for yourself. But this is all found within Revelation 19. 
And if you look at each of those five sections, you have this structure that is played out. In verses 1 through 6, you have the great whore, Babylon, is judged. We have already seen that in our preceding chapters. We'll note it in just a moment. Then you have the great supper of the Lamb, verses 7 through 10. Then the apex of the chapter is the return of the righteous king. When Jesus Christ comes back, when he returns, all these other things take place. And then the great supper of God, verses 17 and 18, we'll see the ravenous birds gorge themselves. They feed on the flesh of the defeated. It's a very graphic picture. And then finally, verses 19 through 21, the beast and false prophet are judged and thrown into the lake of fire. We see this as a repeating theme. It's picked up again in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. So you have this structural element within the chapter, and the emphasis is on the second coming of Jesus Christ, on the righteous return of Jesus. The other thing that you see in chapter 19, which I I believe is interesting, especially inside of all of Revelation, is that it is a loud book. When you read Revelation chapter 19, and we've seen this elsewhere and in passing, but 75 times in the book of Revelation, you have the word great. It's the Greek word megas. It's mega big. And it occurs throughout the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature heightens everything with great and symbols and figures and movement. And we see that in Revelation 19. In this chapter alone, the idea of great occurs throughout. You have a great voice. You have a great multitude. You have a great whore. You have people both small and great. And you have a great God. So this chapter is very loud. It's very great. In addition to the loud event, there is a great multitude witnessing, verifying, authenticating the truthfulness of this moment. In Revelation 19, verses 1 and 16, it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud or great voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. In Revelation 19, verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So you have this witness to this event. The event itself is unavoidable and undeniable. When Jesus Christ returns, every single opposing voice shall be silenced. Every rebellion shall be put down when Jesus Christ returns. Everyone everywhere shall be privy to this moment in time. Now, what are the five sections and how do they play out inside the chapter? The first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is the destruction of the great whore. Verse 1 begins with, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. We know that the great whore is Babylon. We've seen that in chapters 17 and 18. She is the great city. We've seen it as the world. The world is opposed to God. It's seeking to put God down. It's a rebellious city. We have read of her judgment of Babylon's fall from the seventh trumpet in chapter 14, verse 8, the seventh bowl in chapter 16, verse 17, and all the way through chapter 19, verse 5. So you have this repeating theme. Babylon, the world, this great city, the great whore, is going to have an end. Now there's four thoughts on her destruction. When Babylon falls, when Jesus Christ returns, and this great whore is destroyed, there are four notable things that take place. First of all, it is a celebrating judgment. Four times, and we've seen this already in chapter 19, you have the word hallelujah. Hallelujah, verse 1. Hallelujah, verse 3. Hallelujah, verse 4. Hallelujah, verses 5 and 6. When Jesus Christ returns, 
the rebellion against him shall be completely destroyed. Our response to that judgment will be hallelujah. That is what happens in verses 1 through 5. But it is a celebrating judgment, and in addition, it is a true and just judgment. Notice verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and then has avenged on her the blood of his servants. But it is a true and just judgment. We come back to this very idea in verse 11 when we describe the righteous king. One of the arguments against capital punishment or the death sentence is the inability for us to get it right every time. Because we are human, we do make mistakes. Our judgment can be flawed. But the day is coming when the perfect, flawless Son of God shall judge humanity and the judgment and outcome will perfectly align. No mistake will be made. All who are to be judged will be judged. The third thing we see concerning this judgment is that it is an avenging judgment. In verse 2 it says, "...and has avenged on her the blood of his servants." You perhaps will remember the fifth seal in chapter 6 verse 10. The fifth seal is the prayer of the martyrs. And they ask the question, how long, O Lord, until the wicked are judged and we are avenged? The response in the sixth seal is the coming of Christ. And here we see that same pattern repeated. The prayer of the martyrs in the fifth seal is answered in Revelation 19.2. Romans 12.19 tells us not to avenge ourselves because God shall one day have perfect vengeance. This is that day when the perfect, righteous, true, just judgment of God shall be executed against all unbelievers. And then the fourth thing is that it is an eternal judgment. It says that the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. How horrible, how terrible, how just. When Jesus Christ returns, the great horror will be destroyed. The second thing we see inside the passage is that the pure bride is received. It's found in verses 6 through 10. There are three things inside of this paragraph, this section, that I think are noteworthy. The first is that the Father reigns. Notice it says in verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We're going to come back to this idea when we look at the righteous ruler returning. But the Father reigns. Hallelujah, for our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ returns, all evil will be destroyed. When Jesus Christ returns, we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ returns, the pure bride, the people of God, are going to be received. Not only does the Father reign, but the Son receives. The Son, Jesus Christ, in his return, receives his bride. Now, as a pastor of a church, I've officiated many weddings. One of the most precious moments is when the groom sees his bride and in those initial moments of the wedding ceremony... Both individuals are simply glowing. They are dressed perfectly. And the doors are open and the bride begins to descend down the aisle and the groom is just 
It's a beautiful scene. That will no less be true when Jesus Christ returns. The, the specialness, the intimacy of that moment when Jesus returns. When Jesus Christ returns, he is going to be happy to see you. And his face is going to be aglow. And the bride rejoices. When we see the groom, it's going to be a day of unprecedented joy. Why do we rejoice? Well, one, we are clothed. We are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. The amazing thing about her garment described in this paragraph is the working of the Spirit both in her and through her so that her garments are described as the righteous deeds of the saints. You'll remember in the book of Revelation that we receive crowns for things that he has done in us and through us to those around us. But because we realize that he is the one who has done it, we take the crown and we throw it back at his feet. That's what this text tells us. Not only do we rejoice because we are clothed, but because we are received. What a beautiful day it will be when we never have to experience again rejection. Rejection. But in that day, we will be received. And it will be a glorious day. The fact that you and I are at that supper is simply amazing. The primary idea within this text is found in verses 11 through 16. In verses 11 through 16, we have the righteous king returning. Then I saw heaven opened and behold. Throughout the book of Revelation, you have the word behold. It intends to capture our attention. Jesus Christ is coming again and he is sitting on a white horse. The righteous king will return and we see that in verses 1, 11 through 16. Notice four things about the description in verses 11 through 16. First, this one who returns is just. It says in verse 11, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. As Christians, we endeavor to justify war. St. Augustine formulated a theology called just war. And I could explain to you what that means, but they give a basic criteria as to when we should or should not invade a country. Now, we all wish to be just, but only God is truly and thoroughly and unequivocally just. When he carries forward war and judgment, it will be without blemish. And again, think about what happens when Jesus comes. The saints will be gathered and the unbelieving are going to be destroyed. That is a very sobering concept or idea, and we have looked at this already in Revelation. But when that judgment is played out, it will be a just judgment. It is a true judgment, a thorough judgment. In fact, it says that his eyes pierce. He sees everything for what it is. Not only is this judgment and judge just, but the judgment is overwhelming. In verses 11 through 15, as we read the paragraph, it describes this. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Many would suggest this is Calvary. I would believe otherwise from the book of Revelation. And it says, the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
I believe we are a part. The saints are a part of that army. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations who have gathered in rebellion against him. And he will rule those nations with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus Christ returns, his judgment is just. It is overwhelming. The blood-dipped robe is the blood of his enemies. He will crush his enemies in, his, in the winepress of his wrath. In Revelation 14, we read the same event. Verse 20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. When Jesus returns, he will be dripping in the blood of his enemies. How graphic, how horrific, and yet how just. Third thing we see inside this paragraph concerning the return of the righteous king is that he is supreme. There are five things noted inside the passage which assure us that the execution of the coming of the unjust and on the righteous is supreme. It says that he has a name which no one names. I thought this was interesting. When Adam named the animals in the garden, he was, he was stating dominion, dominance. When he named the animals, God was placing Adam over the animal kingdom. And we are over the animal kingdom. But in this text, he has no name because no one exercises dominion over him. No one knows that name for no one has that dominion over him. That same idea is seen in Genesis 32, verse 29. When the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob, Jacob asked, what is your name? When Samson's father, Manoah, asked the angel, what is your name? The angel responded by saying, why do you ask, seeing my name is wonderful? He was simply saying it is beyond your ability and your base to know. It is interesting that the revelation tells us his name is the word of God. He has the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Those are all titles that he bears, but there is a name known only to God. He has a name which no one names. He is supreme. He rides a white horse. He has many diadems. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Never has there ever been a more appropriate and fitting assignment and application of that title. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. And the fourth thing we see within that paragraph is that he is coming. He is coming. The coming of Christ should fill us with comfort and encouragement and hope. For the unbelieving, it should fill them with dread. It should fill them with fear. He is coming. When Jesus comes, it will be with a rod of iron. And I have thought this interesting, the descriptive. The rod of iron is mentioned in Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It speaks of the nations raging against God. Psalm 2, Revelation 2, verse 27. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, Jesus Christ, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And now in Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. What is interesting about this whole statement is that he rules them with a rod of iron. 
The word rule in Revelation 19.15 is the same word which is translated shepherd and then as a verb to feed. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, His rod and his staff, they comfort me. His rod and staff are not used on me, but against my enemies. I have read people who believe that the rod and staff are means of disciplining us or chastening us. That is not how it is used. That rod is against the unbelieving. It is not used against the people of God. The rod and staff is a threat to the enemy, but it's a source of encouragement and comfort to the saint. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. When God wields his rod and staff, his enemies will tremble and be destroyed. It's the same word used to describe the office and function of a pastor or elders over a local church. The rod and staff of the office is for the sheep's comfort. It is only the lion, the bear, and the wolf that need to fear the rod and staff. So when we think of Psalm 23 and we think of the rod and the staff, when we think of the rod of iron, that is for the unbelieving world. It is not for us. The coming of Jesus is nothing for us to fear. It is all comfort, encouragement, and hope. So we long for the coming of Christ. The fourth thing we see in verses 17 and 18 is this very graphic depiction of the ravenous birds feeding. It says in verses 17 and 18, Then I saw, remember this grammatical marker, an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now look at verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The ravenous birds feed. Two things about this paragraph. The first is that the ravenous birds obey him. You and I ought to realize that all of creation is submits to the hand and voice of God. God does what he wants with what is his, and when he does it, it is always right. It is always just. He is always faithful. He moves all of creation to accomplish his goal, his end, his design. So when he beckons the birds to come, the birds come. Not only do the birds obey him, but the birds carry out his purpose. They gorge themselves on the flesh of his enemies. The only other time John uses this word, gorge, is in the feeding of the 5,000 in the gospel of John chapter 6, verse 26, and the filling up of the recipients. When God fed them, they were gorged. And the only other time that word is used is now in Revelation 19, verse 15 by John. And John says the birds, verse 21 rather, the birds are going to gorge themselves on the flesh of his enemies. I find it interesting, and remember this, the correct way to understand Revelation is to see it as a picture of contrasts. So as you read Revelation, realize that there is a contrasting picture taking place. The first horse, the first seal, now you see the contrast, Jesus Christ on this great white horse. And notice that we've had the marriage supper of the Lamb. You and I, as the people of God, are invited to a feast. The birds, likewise, are invited to a feast. 
There are two meals pictured in Revelation 19. In one, you are the meal, and in the other, you eat the meal. Folks, you want to be at the table eating the meal. And that's what we have. It's the same picture we see in Matthew 24. You either hear well done or you are well done. When Jesus Christ returns, when Jesus Christ returns, there are two consequences. One for the believing and one for the unbelieving. Please believe in Jesus. Believe the gospel. When you believe the gospel, the coming of Jesus is a hope, it's a comfort, it is an encouragement. But if you don't believe the gospel, then fear and believe the gospel. Because when Jesus Christ returns, the final page will have been turned. The last thing we see within the text is the rebellious armies defeated. The text begins in verse 19, And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That same picture in Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21, parallels in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Both describe that final battle. Four things about this army noted inside the text. First, it is pervasive. This is a national, global army. A day is coming when the armies of the world shall be gathered against God and his people. We see this in Revelation 20. Currently, the devil cannot deceive the nations, but when he is released, he will go forth to deceive the nations. And this deception will be convincing and seductive. We see that in verse 20. But the armies of the world will be captured. Twelve times the word occurs in the New Testament. Ten of the twelve are used by John. Eight of those in the gospel and only once here in Revelation. It means to seize, to squeeze, to grab. The armies are going to be defeated. Then the beast was captured. And then it's also interesting to see the false prophet who is in his presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark. And we have seen how the word and words, signs and wonders, miracles occurs throughout Revelation, but they're primarily done by the unholy trinity. The intent through the signs and wonders in Revelation is that you might be deceived, but Matthew 24 assures us that we as the elect cannot be deceived. But when this event takes place, It is pervasive. It is a global, national, international army that is gathered to do battle against God. And yet that army is captured. That army is deceptive. And that army is condemned. It says that this army will be thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Folks, Jesus Christ is coming again. What do we do with this? I mean, Jesus Christ is coming again. It's something you know. I trust you are ready for. You believe in Jesus. When he does come, the righteous will receive their reward. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The unrighteous, the unbelieving, as horrific and terrible as that is, the judgment against them will be just. And they will be in a place where the smoke rises forever and ever and ever. 
But what do we do with this? Let me offer you seven concluding thoughts. The first is this. When Jesus returns, when he returns, you will know it. You will not miss the coming of Jesus. We have seen in Revelation 19 and throughout Revelation, it is great, it is loud, it is witnessed by a multitude that no one can number. His return is inescapable. As a believer, be assured of this. As a believer in Jesus, you will be a part of this assembly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 assures his people that they will be a part of his return. The second thing is that Babylon shall fall. And the judgment against Babylon is horrific. What are you suffering right now? Perhaps you are struggling with uncertainty, doubt, inability, weakness, relational collapse, and old age. Jesus will fix that. His coming is our hope. Right now, Jesus prepares a place for you, John chapter 14, and you shall come into full possession of your inheritance and participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will be at that reception like no reception ever before. The return of Jesus Christ is a comfort to his people. Be encouraged today. Jesus Christ is coming again, and you will be reunited with your loved one. His armies shall be with him. But that coming as a comfort to us should terrify the unbelieving. All of creation carries out its purpose in fulfilling the story. Every raven, every fish, every crawfish, every rock fulfills God's design. Nothing misses a beat. And it's all pulling in one direction. Jesus is coming again. It is truly unfathomable, but there is going to be an end to evil. And the full embrace of righteousness. Therefore, have hope in God. There is an end to your suffering, your anxiety, your loss, your absence, your confusion, your inability, and your weakness. But there is an end. Jesus Christ is coming. Hallelujah. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father God, we read a text like this. And it appears to be very clear. Jesus Christ is coming again. Oh, how we desire for that coming to be today. Father, I pray that as your people, we would be encouraged and comforted as we experience loss and absence, as we struggle against fallen flesh and the brokenness of our world. Father, may we be encouraged. Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he does, he will thoroughly straighten all that is crooked. This morning, as we celebrate the gospel, as we partake of these elements, encourage us to see Jesus and to celebrate him and what he has done in our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.